everybody, and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we are here today to talk to you about some things you should have learned in school, but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes we talk about how nothing has happened this week to us. Yeah, we've been, like, extra boring. Like, even by the standards of quarantine world, boring. It's been cold. I'm really cold. It's because it is fall, and... Um, or we had our like one nice day of fall, then it was 90, and now it's back down in the 50s. Yeah, and we even got our first frost, and then the next day it was 80. Like, this place sucks. Yes. But I know you are all really enraptured about the weather. We did finish Bly Manor. It was so good. It was good. I liked the uh, the Haunting of Hill House better. Mm-hmm. This one had more emotions. Oh, and we watched... The Ritual. And it's funny because between watching Midsummer and The Ritual, I got an update on my ancestry DNA and I found out that I am part Swedish. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. It's nothing but cults and monsters and stuff like that in Sweden, apparently. Cults, monsters, and absolutely gorgeous scenery. Yeah, but I don't go outside. Like Austin, at one point during the movie, we're watching it and, you know, somebody gets hurt out in the wilderness and he's like, oh, look, that would be you on a hike. I'm like, if I'm on a hike, something has already gone horribly wrong. Yes. I don't go the places and do the things. Austin got an electric bike. Yep, I got an electric bike. It's really fun. I actually don't know how to ride a bike. I learned how to ride a bike. I rode a bike regularly as a kid. I am also proof that you can, in fact, forget how to learn to ride a bike. I, it's someone, someone told me to know that's impossible. I said, it's not impossible. You can forget how to ride a bike. Yeah, I mean, I was never an especially strong cyclist to begin with, and it took me months upon months to learn because I have very poor balance and am just a nervous person in general, especially as a kid. And then a few years ago, I got a bike because I was moving out to the coast, and I was like, you know... I've read that this is a good place to bike, and I'll get a bike so I can get places faster. Immediately started falling down. Oh, no. (laughs) Luckily, it was like a $20 Craigslist bike, so I didn't spend a lot on it, but I have forgotten how to ride a bike. I also can't ride a Vespa. I've tried. Uh, I can't turn left. I have a Zoolander problem when it comes to the Vespa. okay we'll just take we'll just take lots of right turns yeah i think it'll probably be the same when you teach me how to ride your bike i don't know for some reason i can't look over my left shoulder as well and this is before i injured my left shoulder weird well this will be that's gonna be an exciting time (laughs) oh we did do one good thing this week one exciting thing well yeah we voted we voted we got our ballots in the mail we researched every single candidate including the judges you really should because some of them have sketchy records kind of like someone who's up for the supreme court and we drove up to the ballot drop box at the election office. And there, there was, was a, there there was was a, a line. line. There was a line. I was so excited. I mean, it wasn't a long line because it was a weekend and people are doing stuff. And we drove up right when they were pulling out the ballots from the boxes to bring them inside. And it looked like there were a lot. And we got to hand it directly to an election official. We did check his badge first to make sure. And we were just really happy to get to vote. We I posted a picture of us with our I Voted stickers on Twitter earlier today. I'm, I'm so excited. We got to vote. Yeah, we were like analyzing, making sure every little bubble was filled in perfectly. We read the instructions aloud. There was one where we weren't going to vote and we talked about writing something in, but we realized we didn't have anything we cared enough about to write in and we didn't want the chance of a write-in causing like a smudge or anything, so we didn't do it. If you have a write-in that you're passionate about, do it. I'm not saying not to, but... Yeah, ours was, which cat did we want elected to this office? Yeah, that was him. I was like, is anybody else running unofficially? And I I didn't know, so I didn't write anything in. Yeah. So that was our week. Very exciting. Um, If you do not yet have a plan to vote, if you've got questions about voting, go to vote.org and you can have all your questions answered. Yeah, I think it's like what I saw this morning, like 25 million people have voted so far in 40 states. I haven't seen numbers that high, but I have seen that it's like record numbers, even compared to four years ago when there were record numbers by this point. This was on an ABC report, so it's reliable enough that I believe it. Yeah, I... I haven't seen any numbers since yesterday, but I know it's a record high number of early voters. Although I saw a headline and I was like, I can't even handle this article right now about how a ridiculous number of Pennsylvania votes have already been thrown out. Ugh. Like it was, I believe it said something like 360,000, but don't quote me on that because that's I just insane. glanced at a headline. And I was like, I can't. No, that's, 
that's like unreasonably insane for that many to be thrown out already. But okay. Yeah. All right. But, but I don't not, know for sure. We're not talking about not voting talking this about week. That. I've already talked about that uh, two episodes ago. So if you're interested in voting. Ta- we think we've been talking about that for 17 years now, it feels like. Yeah. I also commented on this on Twitter, but I was telling Austin the other day, I hope no election in the rest of our lives matters as much as this one. Mm. They all matter. Mm. You should always vote, especially in local elections, which, which can be decided by one vote. But dear God, I miss the days where like the most dire consequences was how much your taxes will be raised. Or it's like, this person wants to tear down a park to build a highway. I don't know. I think you're just thinking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy now. I might be. <laughs> Which, if you haven't read that, go read it. It's fun. It's a very fun book. Austin so, goes first this I'm going to go first this week. So, if you'll pardon me for a moment. No. I am going to talk about something near and dear to my heart. Okay, you are not supposed to talk about me on this episode. No, I'm talking about the heart. Oh, okay. But not in a gross way. I want to talk about, like, the organ. Thank God. I hate Valentine's Day and all that shit. Yeah, because we don't... I didn't learn much human anatomy until college, and even then it was just, like, the actual anatomy and physiology, nothing about the crazy shit we used to think about things. I do remember when I went to community college for a while... I had a bio class and they had a bisected, I, I want to say cow or horse heart in the room. And all the other, a lot of the guys too, but especially the girls like, ew, I'm not going near that. And I was like, can I poke it? Because I'm a big animal person to the point where I've considered vegetarianism more than once. But by God, I loved dissecting frogs. It to the point where when I was a teacher, I was the drama teacher. And if a science teacher had a wasn't as able to handle it, I was like, I'll do it. I'll monitor these kids. You just have to have the diagrams up because I don't remember what most stuff is. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm talking about the heart. I was trying to see if Pliny the Elder had anything to say about the heart because I was looking at what things people thought in the crazy old days. Well, you should just email that museum, see what his skull has to say. Oh, yeah, we did find out that, like... They think they've found Pliny the Elder's skull near Pompeii. Yeah. yeah, Pliny. Pliny, let us know if that's your skull. Because they found an ornate sword near it, but they don't think it's his jaw because it has traces of North African DNA, so probably not Pliny's jaw, but they think it's his skull. I'm really like curious to know how a skull and a jaw ended up together to the point where they thought they were part of one skull. There are several bodies Oh, I, there were yeah. several bodies. I'm like, how did a jawbone end up like against a skull enough that they were like, this is the same body? So yeah. Who's, the, whose jaw is that, Pliny? Who is it? Who, who knows? But yeah, we don't... Anyway, I looked up to see if Pliny the Elder had anything to say on this, and all that came up is, you know that phrase, home is where the heart is? Uh-huh. Pliny the Elder. That is a Pliny the Elder quote. Home is where the heart is. What was he talking about? I guess home is where the heart is. <laughs> you didn't look for any additional I didn't context? For, I didn't look for any additional context. Now, I don't. Sh- I hope this is a misattributed quote, because it has nothing to do with pee or amulets made of animal organs. Pliny is actually, like, um, he's at Pliny, at shit Pliny says on, on Twitter. And he's been answering some really interesting questions lately. I so. ask about that. Yeah, be like, hey, dude, was this you? And what were you talking about? Like, is are you talking about, you know, the emotional home is where the heart is? Or it's like, I keep boxes of hearts at my house. To study. To study. Obviously. Yeah. So I'm going to, since Pliny didn't have anything to say, I'm going to go to our net, my second favorite standby, Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Uh, he thought that the heart held the soul and was the center of conscious thought. I think there are still, like, people who believe that. No, yeah, he was actually not alone in this. Uh, it was a commonly held belief across India, China, big chunks of the Middle East. Egypt. Egypt. All of these other countries and places and cultures thought, yeah, the heart holds, like, how we think and holds the soul. Yeah, isn't that why when we look at Egyptian mummies, the brains have been, like, all swirlied and taken out, but the heart is still, like... I think it's in a jar. I don't in think a jar. it's in the body. Mm-hmm. Well, because they pulled the brain out through your nose. I guess you could pull your heart out through your nose. It would um... not be in one piece. It would be in lots of little pieces and be a very different, difficult lapro- laparoscopic surgery. <laughs> a very difficult leprechaun. A f- it'd be a, it's the most difficult leprechaun is the one who reaches up your nose and pulls out your heart. <laughs> I think that was actually in the Leprechaun movie. I'm trying to think of a way where that would work. They would have to tear through several organs. Oh, yeah. So anyway, back on topic. (laughs) Uh, He thought the the heart was a hot, dry organ, 
And the rest of our organs and brains basically existed to help cool it down. You know, I get that. I, 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 I was telling Austin the other day because you we were watching a show where they had like people doing leeches and bleeding. And I was like, I get that. Like, you know, they're coughing up blood. It makes sense. I can see how they would also get to this yeah. because, you know, when you're hot, when you're hot, your heart tends to beat faster or vice versa. He also observed that he thought that the heart was the first thing that formed in chicken embryos, he, w- he would observe. And um, he was actually wrong. The first thing that forms is your asshole. Yep. We all start our lives, our our yeah. We all start out as an asshole. As assholes. Uh, but the heart does form really early in development. It's one of the first like actual like organ organs to mm-hmm. show up. The view that the heart was the center of everything was the view for a very long time until about five hundred years later, when Galen, a Turkish scholar, thought this is ridiculous. This cannot be true. We have advanced so much beyond this. We have a better understanding of the human body. And in his work on the usefulness of body parts of the body. <laughs> This translation. Yes. It's not the best one, but yeah. He says, this is all wrong. Clearly, the liver is the source of all (laughs) consciousness because the liver controls, produces the humors and the heart is just the heat source for the body. That, not not the liver part, but that kind of reminds me of a ruling we were reading from a judge when we were researching because uh, he was arguing against somebody who was saying that, well, we've never allowed this kind of, I think it was an abortion before, we shouldn't allow it now. And he said, are you arguing that as science changes and, and honestly, as we continue to evolve as a species, we shouldn't allow new medical treatments because yeah. we didn't before? It's like as as we advance as as we advance as a society, we're going to change shit. That's just natural. Mm-hmm. It we, was just it was just really funny to hear him say that to these people who I think one of them was a doctor. He's like, so you're saying that we shouldn't advance medical science? Yeah. And which I guess I got like I understand that can be a slippery slope argument, but the way the other guy was arguing it, that's what he was saying. So yeah, so the liver controlled the th- the thought, but the heart still held the soul. So the liver, they thought the liver did what the brain did. Well, I mean, we should listen to our livers when they're telling us to not drink anymore. Yes, always listen to your liver. Uh, also, this is another thing that the Romans thought that I thought was just kind of cool. They thought that there was a vein called the vena amoris, which connected from your fourth finger all the way to your heart. Mm-hmm. And that is why the wedding ring is placed on your fourth finger. Yep, I knew that. I didn't know that. I was like, huh, this is weird. Yeah, so that school of thought that the liver was the brain and the heart was the soul continued for a long time. Even Avicinia, a famous Middle Eastern doctor and anatomist, and Da Vinci uh, followed the school of thought. And even though they'd carefully diagrammed anatomy in ways we hadn't seen before, they still thought, yeah, the liver is where we do all the thinking. The heart just moves stuff around and keeps you warm and has a soul. Okay. Eventually, we figured out the whole circulatory system. You know, we breathe in air. Oxygen is absorbed by hemoglobin in the lungs. Uh, The heart pumps the blood through the body. Blood delivers oxygen to cells. Then those blood cells take carbon dioxide from the cells, and it's brought back to the lungs where we exhale it as CO2. Mm -hmm. I compressed hundreds of years of history with this in which various people made incremental discoveries, but that was super boring. (laughs) And I was like, nope, we're cutting that out. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, and then we actually started figuring out ways to treat the heart, but it is super difficult to do that Mm -hmm. because your heart is always beating. And if it isn't, you die very quickly. Yes. That's why uh, knowing CPR is a really important thing. Yeah, very important to know CPR. And also doing surgery on the heart is very difficult because it's always beating. Mm -hmm. And if it stops, you die. So it's... It was almost impossible to perform any type of surgery on the heart without killing somebody because it's just moving. Are you going to get into the really cool ways we get around that now? Oh, yeah, I am. All right. Because I, I was going to say something. But I'm like, I bet he's going to get into oh, it. Of course. And lots of stuff, you know, lots of stuff can go wrong with your heart. I mean, like tears and all the various aortas and ventricles. Um, the way we get blood to our heart is very stupid. <laughs> it's like the design of the heart is one of the best arguments against intelligent design that people have. <laughs> and it's because the stuff that, like the blood delivery system to the muscles of the heart, which uses a lot of blood because it's always moving. It's a very dense muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work very well and it can get clogged and blocked very easily. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the, lots of stuff can go wrong with the heart. Yes. And it took us a long time to even figure out how to do anything about it. The first recorded heart surgery was actually on something called the pericardium which is kind of an envelope around the heart of like tissue Mm -hmm. that uh, helps hold your heart in place and helps protect it from infection and protect it from friction because it's always beating. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It was in 1801, a Spanish surgeon 
Francisco Romero was the first recorded surgeon to create pericardial effusion, uh, which is basically an abnormally large amount of fluid built up in the pericardium and was compressing the heart. So he cut in and drained the fluid off of it. All right. This is something people, doctors will still do today. So this is the first recorded case. I mean, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yep. According to his records, he did this at least twice in some manuscripts and diaries we found of his. The first recorded surgery on the heart itself was by a Norwegian doctor, Dr. Axel Kaplan, in 1895. Axel is an underappreciated name. Yep. He litigated, which means kind of tied shut, a bleeding coronary artery on the heart of a victim who had been stabbed. Sorry, I heard litigated and I knew what you meant, but then all of a sudden I imagined him like in a courtroom with the heart up on the stand, cross-examining it for its crimes. Yes, this um, this heart had been embezzling funds and he was going to prove it before a court of law. So he stitched up somebody's heart who had been stabbed. Yep. The patient was fine for about 24 hours. Then he died after falling ill with a fever, which, again, this was 1895. That's a huge advancement, though. Yeah, we didn't have, like, antibiotics or a lot of stuff that we have now. Yeah, like, they didn't really know about sanitation. Like, go back to our hand-washing episode. We took it a little bit. Hand-washing or the Dr. Muter episode. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's like, it was a whole different game. And if you're having surgery like this, this was... Like extreme surgery where it's like, well, he's going to die anyway. We might as well try this. And kind that's of like that guy who wants to do the head transplant. He's like, yes. I'm going to die anyway, so you might as well see if this is possible. There are eventually other small heart surgeries, mostly on the veins around the heart to fix blockages and tears. But the first corrective surgery on the heart valve was in 1925. And are you ready for this? No. The doctor, in order to fix this, stuck his finger inside of a beating heart and palpitated around, which meant fell around with his finger, and corrected the valve with his finger. That's awesome. It worked, and the patient lived for several years after that. That's awesome. Like, sometimes you just gotta, like, Uh, you gotta, it's like uh, Nintendo cartridges, just blow on it. Yeah, it's like that. His colleagues um, thought it was incredibly reckless and dangerous that he did this. Guy's gonna die anyway. Yeah. And um, he was asked to please never do that again. It worked! It worked that time. Did he do it another time where it didn't work? No. He didn't do it again. Like, that's the thing is, it worked, and if a patient agrees to it, then I don't see the problem. Yeah. So yeah, that was... Then it was just like, you know, it's still more just minor things and slow advances. But the big advancement in heart surgery was cardiopulmonary bypass, Mm -hmm. in which... Uh, we use basically drugs to paralyze the heart so it starts moving, start, stops moving. And then um, we basically plug your blood into a machine that oxygenates it and pumps it around your body instead of your heart. Yep. It's called bypass. It's uh, The first prototype of this was actually built by Maximilian von Frey in 1885, but it lacked the technology and drugs to actually work. Wait, so it's called bypass surgery because it literally causes the blood flow to bypass your heart. Yes. That's what I never questioned what you, that meant You before. never questioned what that meant? Yeah. That's why it's called bypass surgery, because they're bypassing your heart and just pumping blood with a machine. I've got questions, but I'm not going to... I won't get into it. Yeah. So, yeah, but they didn't have the technology for this to actually work because it was 1885. Mm-hmm. But he just kind of built something that might have worked, maybe, but they never really used it on people. The first working prototype was built in 1926 by a Soviet scientist, Sergei Brukhonenko. Early experimentation was mostly done on animals. Yes. And so they did experiments on that for a while until uh, they did actually attempt their first surgery on a human in 1951. The patient did not survive, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't because of the bypass machine. There was a unknown congenital heart defect in the Mm -hmm. patient, Mm -hmm. and they died because of that, not the bypass surgery. But it kind of gave people cold feet for a couple of years. It wasn't attempted yeah. again until 1953 uh, by Dr. John Gibbon and Frank F. Albritton Jr. at the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. I'm not sure what reaction you're looking oh, for. Oh, Philadelphia was like a center of medicine from our Dr. Muter episode. Did yes. you forget this? No, yeah. I didn't okay. forget this. I was just... She forgot this. Folks. I wasn't sure what reaction you were looking for. Just just imagine Gritty and the Philadelphia fanatic doing heart surgery. That's what I was picturing. <laughs> I don't like to imagine mascots if I can avoid yeah. it. They repaired a congenital uh, heart defect on the aorta of a 18-year-old woman, and it was successful, and it was great. And over the over the, throughout the 1950s, a team of doctors at the Mayo Clinic refined the use and made a reliable heart bypass machine with the help of General Motors. Yeah, 
Yeah, because like remember, like a lot of people were shocked when like Ford started making ventilators at the start of the pandemic. It's amazing the stuff car companies have like oh. converted to over the years when there was a need. Yeah, car companies. It's like, oh, you just need a machine to do a thing. Well, we are great at making machines that do things. Yeah, going to trade school, you could be like not just doing this trade that you really love, but you could be like saving the fucking world. Yeah, and. Of course, you know, the, the guys who developed this were very specifically engineers. Yeah, the guys who developed it, but they, I'm sure yeah. they had, like, the, they're like, okay, guys, now you're going to be making these parts. And they were like, cool, cool, we can do that. Yeah, we can absolutely do that. Yeah, it's like, we give us a week, we got it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and of course, during this time, they also developed the practice of using hypothermia mm-hmm. as a part of heart surgery, which basically they cool your body down so it just, like, goes into hypothermia where it just slows everything down and like yeah your body like oxygen your body yeah. tries to hibernate basically but, to try to save itself which actually has saved a lot of lives yeah over it's the like, years. like i mean after a certain amount of time you die from the hypothermia but mm-hmm. but yeah there's been like people like cases where people have been like they've fallen through the ice and have been underwater for half an hour mm-hmm. and they bring them up and they have minimal brain damage from this and it's remarkable mm-hmm. and it's not a miracle like that one <sighs> stupid fucking movie wanted you to think it was just science not jesus yeah there was something about that preview like i don't mind if you want to watch a religious movie that's fine but there was something about it that implied another family hadn't prayed enough and that's why their kid had died yes. and i'm like oh i forgot about that part that bugs me i'm like so you're saying that their kid deserved to die. That's cool. My dad actually used to be a pond ice skating uh, lifeguard, and he pulled people out of the ice. Ooh, cool. Yeah. So they used hypothermia for heart surgery, and it was basically like, okay, we've got everything stopped, and it basically allowed them to perform surgeries that took more time and left the patient at less risk. Because you can treat hypothermia pretty well. We know how to do that very well. Much like you know, better than we know treating someone who has been dead for half an hour technically Mm -hmm. so yeah it's pretty neat so now i'm going to talk about heart transplants cool up until 1954 organ transplants were science fiction Mm -hmm. literally science fiction these were compared to like the you know book frankenstein Mm -hmm. and it's so this was a remarkable innovative thing that has been around like in some of our family's lifetimes that like organ transplant has gone from this is like ridiculous who can do this to Something common enough that I guarantee everyone, just about everybody knows someone who has had an organ transplant. No. Yeah, you do. No. I thought you knew someone who had a heart transplant. I knew of someone who had a heart okay. transplant. Yeah. I work with multiple people who've had organ transplants. I mean, I probably do and they just don't talk about it. Yeah. I know people who had bone marrow transplants, which, by the way, it's a very easy thing to sign up to be a bone marrow donor. Go to bethematch.org. You do a cheek swab at home and you get put on the list and they especially need donors of color and especially especially donors of more than one ethnicity, because this all matters in bone marrow matching. Oh, I did not know that. There's a lot of white people on the list. Yeah. So, and of course, organ transplants are tricky. Uh, you need to basically suppress the, your immune system for your entire life so that you yeah. don't get rejected. But these are the people that are, you know, they should just stay home. They should like stay, stay home. I mean, it's really your fault if you get coronavirus because you're immunocompromised and you went yeah. outside. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. You're, I'm sorry you have... You had a liver transplant 15 years ago, but uh, your kid just needs to go to school now because I'm inconvenienced and want to play football. I'm sorry you had to have a heart transplant when you were three because of a birth defect, but really, did you consider your choices before that? Yeah. Oh, my. And, of course, you know, uh, organs don't stay viable for very long once no. they're harvested. But it they is... also don't give you less treatment if you're a donor. The EMTs do not look for a donor card and go, oh, donor, skip this guy. Yeah. And, of course, harvesting is also tricky because it's the situations in which you can actually harvest organs from people. It is uncommon for, like, it is not an easy thing for even to find someone who even you can even harvest organs from, let alone find someone who will harvest the right type of organ for a person. So it is a very delicate balance. It's hard to do, and it's super impressive. And then they and have to check the organs to make sure that there's nothing weird. And oh, yeah. it's it, The tiniest thing can mean that you're not mm-hmm. an optimal candidate. And it's much trickier with heart transplants, because with something like kidney or liver transplants, they are able to leave your organs in place. Mm-hmm. And when they put them in, or with a lung transplant, it's usually just one lung, not both. So if you've had one lung removed and something goes wrong, you still have one viable lung and you're not going to die. Heart transplants, they have to remove the organ. And if something goes wrong, it goes very wrong. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, we do not yet have the ability to have a fully fake heart. We have pacemakers. We do have fully fake hearts. We do. Okay. We do that too. Yep. So the first successful heart heart transplant was in 1967. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is by Dr. Christian Bernard in South Africa. Um, there is another doctor, an American doctor, Dr. Charles Shumway, 
who is sometimes credited with performing the first heart transplant. He did perform the first heart transplant in America, and it was his research and his work and breakthroughs that actually led to uh, Dr. Barnard being able to do one in South Africa. And he is credited as a leading pioneer in the field of heart transplants, but he did not perform the first one, and that's something that people sometimes get mixed up. And I have a feeling that he's not too bitter about not being oh, no. the first one. It's like, oh, cool. It's like, my cool, research- I still help save someone. I still help, my research still helps save someone's life. That's amazing. Yep. So the, according to the Mayo Clinic, um, there is about an 85% survival rate with heart transplants, with six oh. to, yeah, with 69% surviving after five years, and roughly half of heart transplant recipients for, survive more than 13 years. How often do they end up needing an additional transplant down the road? I didn't research that. I do know, like, especially if you're real young when you get it, they they want they don't want you to be like five years now you're done, even though you're eight now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do know that they often have to i just don't know how often it i think it it really just depends on the heart and the situation and what's going on with you it's a very individual thing it's not like a oh well it's like oh it's been uh it's been twenty thousand miles time for your little heart up your oh heart no change. i know it's not there's yeah. not like a standard but it's, it's like, like oh, when the organ starts little... to fail it, they sometimes yeah. looked for a new donor yeah in 2019 uh 2000 heart transplants uh were happened a year in the united states and there's about of 5400 globally mm-hmm now, the artificial heart... Wait, how many globally? 5,400. How many in the States? 2,000. Oh, okay. I, I heard the numbers wrong. Okay. Yes, there's... Some people are getting like 9, 10 heart transplants a year. It's the biggest fad. No, I just... I thought you said 20,000 in the United States and you said 5,000 globally. I'm like, wait, that doesn't make sense. I might have said 20,000 by mistake. I'm bad at numbers. <laughs> Artificial hearts. There are currently 13 patents for artificial hearts. Only one is actually, like, medically approved. Uh, they have been around since the 1980s. Uh, they were originally conceived as a permanent replacement for a heart. So people who were waiting for a heart would just have this artificial heart instead of one that they needed the exact match for, and it could just be installed, and you'd be great for the rest of your life. But it doesn't work out that way. It's not perfect, and it's uh, usually just used as a temporary measure for patients to wait until they can get a donor heart. I did know that. I knew there was a temporary one. I wasn't sure if there was a permanent one. Yeah. And this is the fun thing. Some of these heart, these artificial hearts are just pumps. Uh-huh. So they don't produce a pulse and they don't ha- produce a blood pressure. So you would definitely need a medical alert bracelet being like, don't freak out about me not having a pulse. And sometimes these people will end up in the ER for like other reasons and they will scare the shit out of ER doctors and nurses because they'll be responsive, but they don't have a pulse and they don't have a blood pressure. Zombies. Yeah. It's like, you will like, every few years you hear the story about like, yo, this person went to the hospital and scared and you won't believe what happened next. I wonder if they find it funny or exhausting. Probably both. It depends. It, it's like, you know, it, it's people. I would find it hilarious, but I know a lot of people who'd be very annoyed. Mm-hmm. So are you ready for some questions? Yeah. Yeah, my, yeah. mine was kind of an abrupt end there. Yeah. Um. Oh, but if you're interested, go back and listen to our episode about epigenetics to kind of see what happens to some of these transplant recipients in their own words. Oh, yeah. And how they start to take on likes and dislikes and personality traits and even memories they didn't have before their transplant. It's like, yeah, organ transplants are crazy and cool and complicated and awesome. And I hope none of us ever need one. Yep. I hope, I hope none of our listeners ever need one. And if you do need one, I hope you are able to get one quickly and safely. Yes. And also get on that bone marrow donor list. Go donate blood if you can. I can't donate blood. I have severe anemia and it didn't go well last time. But I, I'm on that bone marrow list. Okay. Are you ready for some questions? I am. So will the fact that we thought the liver was the center of thought be on the test? Oh, yeah. Will the vena amoris be on the test? Depends on what class the test is in. Yep. Will people without a pulse because they have an artificial heart be on the test? No. And will all of the animal experimentation that made this these medical marbles possible be on the test? The level of detail will vary based on the grade level, but yeah, they'll have to at least mention it. So yeah, that was the heart. All right. All right. So I'm actually going to start a little differently this week because I am not going to give my sources at the beginning. I'm going to give them at the end. I'm sure by the title of the episode, you'll know what I'm talking about, but Austin has no idea what I'm going to be talking about today. She's been very secretive. Usually she'll run out of the room screaming facts angrily at me. All I said to him was, hey, there's no genocide this week. So, okay. That's one hint. I am actually not angry about anything in this episode to speak of. Surely that's impossible. You're angry about everything. I am not angry this week. 
All right, let's get going. Okay. Around 1890, a house was built in the lower Hudson Valley. It's a 5,000 square foot Victorian with 18 rooms. It's massive. It's this beautiful home, exactly what you'd expect to find along the river in the East Coast in a small village. Uh, It's in a village called Nyack, which is about a little less than an hour north of New York City by car. And the address is One Levada Place. The house has this wraparound porch, which is perfect for sitting outside on nice days. You can watch the boats go by. It's full of arched doorways. It still has the original, like, stained glass, exposed brick wood floors. Are we sponsored by Zillow now? Is this how you're telling me we haven't, we've gotten ad revenue? <laughs> God, I wish. I wish. Um, if you look at modern images, it looks like the exact kind of place a family would go or a group of friends would go for, like, a weekend away in semi-upstate New York. Like, only an hour north of New York City. But it's it's gorgeous. There's a in-ground saltwater pool that lets you look over the river. There is a clawfoot bathtub that looks like it's deep enough to actually cover both your chest and your and your knees. So did someone just like look at your dream diary and build a house out of it? Oh yes, and you will find out why. Oh no. For the next 60 years of its life or so, it served as a private residence and a boarding house. In about 1960, though, the house became empty and began to fall into disrepair. Then along came a family. They were Helen and George Ackley with their kids Cynthia, George, Kara, and William, and some grandkids. I wasn't really able to figure out how old the kids were other than Cynthia was a teenager, but apparently someone was old enough to have kids. Helen wrote a piece for Reader's Digest in 1977 saying, I saw our house for the first time on a hot July day in 1967. A bedraggled old Victorian, it had stood vacant for about seven years. Its waist-high lawn clutches about a sturdy wood foundation. Its wood-shingled roof was awry. But as I followed the real estate agent and my husband George into the spacious hall, I knew I was home. So it had found its family. This family was ready to love it and take care of it. So why did Helen write this article? Is it haunted? When they were moving in, the neighborhood kids told them the house was haunted. (laughs) But it wasn't old, empty, and it looks like if you picture a haunted house, this is what you see. It kind of reminded me, and this is the opposite coast, but in an East Coast way of the first season of American Horror Story house. So, of course, the neighborhood kids are like, it's haunted, it's empty, and it's creepy. Like, even we, like, we have a much newer house on our street that is vacant, although I think the church owns it and, like, keeps Christmas stuff in there. But I still kind of think, that house is haunted. That's why nobody lives there. Maybe that's where they hold their exorcisms. Maybe. Oh, I did tell you about, I, I, was, I was on a walk, and I saw, like, one of the priests walking from the church to, like, the whatever the priest hut is. I don't know. But he was like, he was wearing his like black robes and he had this like ma- like red like mask over his face, but it was a scarf and it was blowing in the wind. And he looked like some weird like post-apocalyptic like vampire slaying priest. It was, it was like, it's like, wow, I did not expect to see that today. At least one of our priests lives in a literal mansion, like a McMansion, but a mansion around the corner from the church, which I'm like, I'd be so mad if my tithes were going to the upkeep of this house because it's clearly old and probably needs a lot of work. But he had his window open and I glanced over and he was watching Drop Dead Diva. <laughs> and just, I went to Catholic school and I was like picturing my Catholic school priest watching Drop Dead Diva. Because <laughs> like Drop Dead Diva is the story of like this curvy woman and this literal model die at the same time but the model ends up in the curvy woman's body and has to live her life and it's like all that and there's a lot of sex stuff happening in the in the show like i'm like priest is watching it um so anyway the kids weren't just telling stories as the family would come to realize in fact directly across the river from this house is terrytown I've heard of this place. Terrytown is believed to have inspired the legend of Sleepy Hollow. And in fact, parts of the town, if not the whole town, I kind of have read different things, is now called Sleepy Hollow. It started with the usual stuff. Footsteps on the stairs, hanging lights swinging without any breeze, doors slamming, the normal poltergeist stuff. The family was undeterred and made the house into their home. And the ghosts were cool with it. Huh. Every morning, one of them would wake up Cynthia to go to school by shaking her bed. If it was a weekend or a break, she would just tell them, don't wake me up in the morning, and her bed would not shake the following morning. The ghost would also give gifts. Cynthia's brother would get coins. Cynthia herself got a a silver sugar tong. The grandchildren got baby rings that fit them perfectly. 
uh, right around the time that they had special events in their lives. The family insists that none of these things were in their house before, which makes me wonder, like, did the ghosts have some kind of, like, ghost bank safe? Were they stealing these from neighbors? What is happening? I think it was like, they were like, like how if you're nice to crows, they start bringing you gifts. I think the same thing must be true with ghosts now. (laughs) Maybe. They also, three of them saw their new roommates. Helen saw a man one time. He was on a, she was on a stepladder. She was painting the ceiling of a room when she noticed this dude and she referred to him as having like apple cheeks and looking really friendly. And he was hovering in midair, rocking back and forth like he was on a rocking chair. She didn't see a chair. And she just said, do you like the paint? And he just smiled and nodded and kept watching her. They actually seemed to like really enjoy all the renovations that were being made. The one who woke Cynthia up was a woman. And then the third was a Navy lieutenant from the American Revolution who her son saw, to use Helen's words, eyeball to eyeball outside the basement door. The family was never bothered by them and peacefully coexisted with their supernatural roommates. Guests, though, were not as happy. (laughs) They would feel cold spots and even have cold spots pass through them. One saw a man from the 18th century, including a powdered wig, the whole thing. Another saw a woman in in a hooded cloak. And then two people died in the house. The first was George, Helen's husband, who died at the age of 53, following a heart surgery. Oh, no. The other, though, was a guest in the house who was very young and healthy. They're having dinner. And then he had an aneurysm. Now, this definitely added some street cred to this folklore that was going around about this house at this point. And though I think given the other reports about the ghosts, this was probably just one of those horrible things that happens. The family called in a psychic who said two of the ghosts were an English couple who died in the 1750s named Sir George and Lady Margaret. There is a book about Sir George now. It seems impossible to find. I looked. And apparently they had just been going back and forth between the spirit world and Nyack. No one knows why this British couple picked Nyack. Because uh, it kind of sounded, it implied that they had never lived there. Well, I mean, it sounded like a gorgeous area, and there must be some wonderful foliage, and it's just an hour from the city. Yeah. I mean, that's like, if I was dead and was going to haunt a place, I would not be, like, here. I'd be somewhere nice. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's Kansas. I mean, like, maybe, like, the French Riviera. I'd be, I think I'd go back to Boston. I'd start haunting Venice, because I feel like you could do some good haunting in Venice. <laughs> I feel like I'd go back to Boston, which is one of the places where you do have to, in fact, report if your house is haunted and you plan to sell. I just want to ruin someone's like, it's like, oh, man, my resale value just plummeted because there's this ghost who just showed up. She didn't even, <laughs> she didn't even live here. But I think I would time it so that I show up after the contract has been signed and then really fuck with the entire legal process. They didn't know who the third ghost was, and I don't even know how they knew it was a Navy lieutenant from the Revolutionary War. Like, maybe her son just really knew what the uniform looked like or what. But there was no other information on that guy or anything he would do in the house. So Cynthia, she grew up and got married. Her husband actually has written about this on his blog, which is ktransit.com, I think. I'll get to that at the end. Her husband says he also experienced things in the house. The first was on Christmas Eve. He was home alone. He started hearing a conversation in the dining room, but no one was in there. He got up to check. He didn't see anybody. He felt like he was being watched. He turned on all the lights in the house. Then his brother-in-law came and banged on the door unexpectedly and scared the crap out of him. Uh, The second was when he was in their bedroom and they were engaged at the time. It's not clear if it was Cynthia's childhood bedroom, but I kind of think it was. Cynthia was already asleep. He was still awake, but he was facing away from the door. He heard the door open, and then he heard the floorboards creak as someone walked towards him. And he was like, huh, that's weird. And then that person sat down on the bed next to him. So he looks over, not really sure what he's going to see. And it was a woman that he didn't recognize, just staring at him. And she stared for about a solid minute and then calmly got up and just walked back out of the room. So she, of course, caused him to wake Cynthia up, who he kind of told her what was going on. And she was like, oh, yeah, that's the lady who used to wake me up in the mornings. He thinks that it was uh, Cynthia had been married once before, and he thinks that this ghost lady was just coming to check to make sure this one was better. (laughs) But Helen, back to Helen, the mother, not a stupid woman. She saw that there was money to be made in this. So she wrote that article for Reader's Digest. Uh, They delivered about 10 years at the time. And she published several pieces for other local newspapers. At the time, Reader's Digest offered $3,000 for 2,500 words about people who experienced things like this and could back it up. Or to use their word, and this is important, verify. Ooh. 
$3,000 in 1977 is $13,000 today for 2,500 words. I mean, you could we could absolutely bang out 2,500 words on about the crazy crap that's happened here. And this place is not haunted that Can much. I talk about my high school house or the cursed house I had in Virginia? Or, it, yeah. That's... Like, because... But the problem is the problem is the word verified. I can't. I, there are other witnesses to some of it. The witnesses to the Virginia House, I'm not calling them. And the witnesses in Kansas, most people don't really want to talk about it. I mean, we could absolutely talk about the 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 TARDIS that just turns itself on. I think it's finally done. I took the batteries out. Oh, okay, okay. She also, in addition to writing these things, allowed her house to become part of a ghost tour. So she was not quiet about any of this, and this is important. In about 1989, taxes on the property became too high, so Helen decided it was time to sell the house. She was also getting older and wanted to move to an older, a warmer climate, and this is where the reason we should be taught this in school comes in. Because so far, she's been a ghost story, and not even a very like your your heart's not racing during. Yeah, this, this is this is like okay. We actually had this discussion this week about. Um, the only thing worse than like a haunting where they're like like breaking your stuff and shaking things would be like a Casper the Friendly Ghost style haunting where it's like a happy kid who's always bugging you. Casper specifically would be extremely. He, Casper annoying. would be the worst ghost. Yeah, I like I said to Austin, I would rather have my glasses thrown out of the shelves than have to deal with fucking Casper Ugh. all the time with his little kid needs and his little kid voice and I'm like you need to chill and also he would never sleep or grow up it never stops it never ends um this is taught in some schools law schools this is taught in law school I was not expecting this to turn from ghost story to legal drama the house wasn't on the market long when a couple named Jeffrey and Patrice Stambovsky put in an offer of $650,000 which was accepted that would be about 1.3 million dollars today they made a $32,500 down payment, or nearly $65,000 today. At no point during this process did Helen disclose to the buyers that the house was haunted or that it was part of a ghost tour. Jeffrey was talking to a neighbor of the house, and he was like, oh, you're buying the haunted house. So Jeffrey didn't believe in this, and he was like, whatever, I'm going to buy the house. But his wife, who was pregnant at the time was like, I'm not moving in there. This is not happening. I will not move into that house. I'm not going to expose my baby to ghosts. It's not going to happen. So he went to Helen and he was like, look, my pregnant wife is freaking out. We are not comfortable buying this house. Since this was not disclosed to us, we would like to back out of the deal. And Helen was like, fuck you, no. Also, this has been publicized enough. There's no reason you shouldn't have known. Because by this time, he would have been 25 when the Reader's Digest article came out. This had been on several national news stories, several local news stories. It was on a local ghost tour that was advertised in the newspaper. She viewed it as his fault for not being aware. He looked at it as, I'm from out of town. Yeah. I don't subscribe to the local newspapers. The Reader's Digest piece came out like 15 years prior to this. There's no logical reason. Yeah, this was this was pre-internet too, so you couldn't just Google it, and there was yeah. no like Zillow listing sponsor as Zillow, in which <laughs> they would have like he would have been able to like scroll down and see. Oh, I actually do haunted. love Zillow. I do love Zillow. It's I, I love it just because we can go online and see like the crazy like like eighties and nineties decor on houses that are for sale now. We looked at a house I used to live in that was incredibly haunted, and. We were looking at this weird spot on the floor that wasn't there when I was a kid. I sent the picture to my mom. And I'm like, was this little weird divot there when I, we were kids? And she said, no. And there's a photo of the floor. And there is some kind of weird symbol on the floor right there. And this house was soups haunted. My favorite was the house with the jacuzzi in the kitchen. Just a built-in floor jacuzzi in the kitchen. I thought it was great. I'm like, I'm going to sit there and eat some spaghetti. <laughs> So after she refused, he didn't show up to the closing, which made the sale void, but he still lost his 32000 plus deposit, um, which you do understand when you sign the contract, unless they allow you to back out, you are out that, that money. But since he felt like he had been lied to about the nature of the home and the nature of the home was going to hurt the resale value, especially because it was part of a tour, he sued them. He took them to court for rescission of the contract, meaning he wanted his deposit back, plus damages for fraudulent rep misrepresentation. Stambovsky said, according to an article in the Skeptical Inquirer, we were the victims of ectoplasmic fraud. He did not say that to the court, just to the press. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, ectoplasmic fraud. Great band name. The A trial court, the first one he went to, dismissed the case. 
uh, citing caveat emptor, which basically means it's up to the buyer to check everything thoroughly. And once a sale is made, whatever's left is their problem. It's the legal Uh, version of buyer beware. Yeah. And it's a leftover from our English roots. And a lot of people think that we need to get rid of it because like an inspector will miss stuff and people will lie. Like there are cases where people have been told these are all the rooms in the house only to find that a room had been walled in at some point, And then they managed to get in there because there's a problem and they discover it's full of mold or junk or bodies or some shit. And they have no legal recourse because you should have known. Like even an inspector can't reasonably expect to find yeah. that. So Stambovsky didn't like that. And he appealed and went to the Supreme Court of New York, bringing us the case of Stambovsky versus Ackley. He told the court, my feeling is that Mrs. Ackley is a very neat old lady who likes to spin tales. But my wife, if my wife is influenced enough by that stuff to feel uncomfortable, that's a good reason not to sink our life savings into the place. Stambovsky's lawyer argued that there was no reason his client should be expected to know the house was haunted since he wasn't privy to the local folklore because he was from New York City, which is still only an hour away by car. He also made the very reasonable argument that a ghost likely wouldn't be on the checklist for a home inspector. That's true. Okay, if a ghost was on the checklist for a home inspector, how would you inspect for it? I actually was looking at a couple of other things about this, not this case, but just like general stuff. And a realtor was talking about he's in a state where you don't have to disclose a haunting, but he'll be on like home showings and then the walls will start banging and they're like, oh, I'm not going to sell this one. (laughs) So I guess that's the kind of stuff that would be on there, you know. Footsteps, banging, ectoplasm and blood pouring from the walls, screaming, full body apparitions, things floating in midair. Also, don't forget that Ackley had uh, been very vocal beforehand, even though she didn't mention this to him at any point. I saw somewhere, but when I went back to verify, I apparently had closed the article so I couldn't find it, that people were stopping by in the yard to go look at it. Which so they would never have a peaceful living situation. So all of these are reasons that he was saying, you know, she was vocal about it, but she suddenly shut up mm-hmm. when she knew she was selling the house. So she knew this was a problem. People are randomly showing up in the yard. They um, there's no reason for her to be arguing that he should have known about this. On the flip side, one of the two sides of the final opinion, because I'm not going to tell you who won. Not yet. Um, said that Ackley doesn't believe there was miss. Uh, they don't believe there was misrepresentation because the community and the general public knew about this because of all the articles that had been published. Stambovsky would have been 25 at the time of the Reader's Digest, so one could reasonably argue that he would have known. Additionally, now this one I think is a little sketch to me, but after they entered the contract, but um, she either began or continued to allow the house to be included on a ghost tour which was published in the newspaper. So their argument here is that because it was in the newspaper, he should have known. But my thought is she agreed to let this house be on a ghost tour after she signed a contract. I don't like that. So who won? I don't know. My my first instinct would be that the uh, the home, the original homeowner, Ackley. Uh, Ackley, yes. Ackley. I think she would. She won just because there is so much burden of proof that has to be applied to this that it's just going to be impossible for this suit to go forward. Yeah, she is the defendant in the case, and yeah. burden of proof is on the prosecution. Yeah, so I'm going to say there's too much burden of proof that she. I think she won. Well, it was close. The decision was three two. Stambovsky won. Oh, yep. It boiled down to this: it wasn't reasonable for an inspector to find ghosts. It wasn't reasonable to assume he would know. And as it was put by Reader's Digest, the stories had to be verified. Oh. Meaning Helen knew something about the house that could cause some kind of challenge and didn't disclose it. And it was something that no one else would be able to find and no one would think to to ask about. Wow. Cool. This case became known as the Ghostbusters case. (laughs) Israel Rubin wrote the majority decision, quote, whereas here the seller not only takes unfair advantage of the buyer's ignorance, but has created and perpetuated a condition about which he is unlikely to even inquire. Enforcement of the contract in whole or in part is offensive to the court's sense of equity. Application of the remedy of rescission within the bounds of the narrow exception of the doctrine of caveat emptor is set forth herein. Set uh, caveat emptor set forth herein is entirely appropriate to relieve the unwitting purchaser from the consequences of a most unnatural bargain. <laughs> oh, 
You know that judge had the most shit-eating grin with that unnatural barking line. Just wait. It also said that regardless of whether or not the hauntings were real, the owner had published their existence and her claiming caveat emptor would simultaneously create an instance of instoppel, meaning she was claiming claiming the right of caveat emptor, which directly contradicted her previous statements about the condition of the house. Another interesting argument in the majority opinion is that the house was supposed to be devoid of residence upon purchase. With her saying that these ghosts were living in her house, she was selling them a house that had people living in it. Wait, in that, in that case, would they have to get the sheriff to come out and evict these ghosts? Can you get the sheriff to come out and evict ghosts? Probably. I mean, there are a lot of cases of ghosts where they do call the cops because they don't know what else is going on. So they they said that she's sitting there saying uh, she's put in her contract with the guy that she is selling him a vacant house. But she has said multiple times that the house is not now nor ever has been nor ever will be vacant. She has also claimed that they are just as real and as active as living beings, meaning that they would never have a not have a roommate. They did dismiss the the fraud charges, so he got no damages. Um, Now, this all sounds very legal and appropriate, but here are some other highlights from the majority opinion. Quote, from the perspective of a person in the position of plaintiff herein, a very practical problem arises with respect to the discovery of a paranormal phenomenon. Who you gonna call? As a title song to the movie Ghostbusters asks, which was then followed by the very reasonable argument that he would have to add a set that they, the courts and the state, would have to add a psychic or medium to the list of required inspectors for every home from then on. Oh, my God. I Yes. So since they aren't going to do that, it is not reasonable to expect every person to assume ghosts. He also added, quote, the notion that a haunting is a condition which can and should be ascertained upon reasonable inspection of the premises is a hobgoblin which should be exercised from the body of legal precedent and laid quietly to rest. <laughs> and in pursuit of a legal remedy for fraudulent rep- misrepresentation against the seller, plaintiff hasn't a ghost of a chance. I am nevertheless moved by the spirit of equity to allow the buyer to seek rescission of the contract of sale and recovery of his down payment. Oh my God. And finally, at one point, this is before he really got into the meat of it, he said, like, this is our ruling, and then he starts to get into the meat of it in a real way. Pity me not, but lend thy serious hearing to what I shall unfold, the ghost of Hamlet's father. <laughs> this, this judge, probably, this was probably the best day of his life. Oh, yes. Oh, man. I, I love it. <laughs> But I do have to give the minority opinion uh, a little bit here. They basically said that, yeah, they should have known about the haunting because it was so widely published. He also said that not mentioning something isn't the same as concealing it to the point where it should be considered fraud. Now, he did lose the fraud charges, but I'm also like going back to that closed in room thing. Failing to mention can also be fraud, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. Just like failing to mention that the roof leaks and it just happens to have not rained recently when the inspection happens, but you knew like that's still fraud. You just didn't mention it. Yeah. Um, or if I like, like they call it writing fraudulent checks. You don't go on and be like, there's no money in my bank account. Here you go. It's a fraudulent check. Even, even though you didn't mention there is a reasonable assumption that there was money in the house or in the, in the checking account. There's always money in the banana stand. There is always money in the banana stand. It said, quote, the existence of a poltergeist is no more binding upon the defendants than it is upon this court. I find his wording interesting. The existence of a poltergeist. At no point did either say ghosts are or are not real. And there is one important thing from the majority opinion I have not said. As a matter of law, the house is haunted. So this house, which is still standing, is legally haunted. Awesome. Stambovsky, in the end, got part of his deposit back. That's it. I've read everything from $5,000 to half. Most sources said half. What happened next? I'm guessing because this house was now legally haunted, um, someone bought it and was super excited to buy it. Well, that is part of it, yes. Uh, Now you do have to disclose if your house is haunted in New York before you sell it. You also have to do that in Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Minnesota. No other state, including Louisiana, requires that. But in Louisiana, if you ever walk down the street in New Orleans, you will see it advertised as a perk. 
A lot of how a lot of states do require you to disclose deaths. Kansas is not one of them. Helen's realtor started getting nonstop calls from people who were interested in the house, uh, somewhere between 25 and 50 at least. But only if they could guarantee the house was haunted. It included a parapsychologist from Florida and the amazing Kreskin, who at the time was a popular television mentalist. So lots of people wanted to buy the house. In 1991, Sheaf did find a, bu- a buyer and moved to Florida. Some sources argue that she took the ghosts with her because since they moved out, no one has seen a ghost there. However, Helen says, no, they're not with me. They stayed in- They stayed up there. And her son-in-law says that Helen's ghost has moved back in now because Helen-, Helen died in 03, I think. But he hasn't been back to the house either. So I think he's just, you know, saying that that seems like a reasonable thing she would do. Now, it actually doesn't sound like they sold the house to the amazing Kreskin or anybody like him. The buyer was Adam Brooks, who wrote the music, the movie Practical Magic, among other things. Like he wrote one of the Bridget Jones movies. He's acted and stuff. He's directed stuff. He's still around. From him, singer Ingrid Michaelson bought the house. What? Remember yesterday? I was like, who was that person we saw in concert? And it was Ingrid Michaelson. I just wanted to make sure before I brought this up today. <laughs> uh, yeah, we saw Ingrid Michaelson in concert, what, three years ago now? Like four. Yeah, she was awesome. It was a good concert. And she owned this house at the time, I believe. It's right on the cusp of when she sold it. She sold it because she didn't spend enough time there and she thought the house wasn't getting the love it needed. So she sold it to a an American Jewish beatboxer, singer, rapper, and alt-rock musician named Maris Yahoo. Uh, it's a Hebrew name and I probably spelled, I probably pronounced it wrong. All three have said there are no ghosts in the house. Oh. All three. They're like, yeah, no, it's, they, they all are talking about, like, this house is amazing to live in. It has the best views you will ever have. The house has a very warm feeling to it. You can tell that people loved this house. It's not haunted, which is also why it's not on the register of most haunted places in the area. Ghost tours don't typically stop there anymore. Nothing like that, because even the local ghost hunters are like, if it was haunted, it's not now. Even though they all will agree it was probably haunted then, which leads us to believe that Helen was the one who was haunted and not the house. Or she made it all up for the money. Now, the Reader's Digest artist article came out before her husband died. But I can see after your husband dies, I'm like, I need to make money somehow. And you know me. I'm all about your hustle. I see what you're doing. Yeah. But I like to think that the house was haunted and that Helen really was experiencing all of this. And Cynthia has allowed her husband to write about it. So I'm thinking Cynthia agrees. And so overall, I go with haunted. And it was like enough that she was willing to fight this in court. And her response to losing was, at least people believe me now. I'm like, cool. I love it. Um, The house was put back on the market in late 2019. And as of June of this year, it was still on sale for $1.9 million. Uh, It's so that the current owner, which is that that beatboxer, singer, rapper, etc., Uh, He wants to just live closer to where his kids go to school. It's a reasonable reason. As far as I can tell, it's still on the market if anybody is interested in a house with a history like this one. Saltwater pool, clawfoot bathtub. Ghosts. Ghosts. My sources were Nyack News and Views, Homes.com, KTransit.com, Ghost Investigator, Hauntings of the Hudson Valley, Volume 1, which is a book, GhostTheory.com, the U.S. Inflation Calc calculator law professor blogs network case briefs gizmodo wikipedia torah law review skeptical inquirer delaware paranormal princeton university yep google scholars publishing of the majority and minority opinions the deseret news new york times realtor.com and nbc new york wow Mm -hmm. so this is the first ever case when a house was declared legally haunted it's so much better than legally blonde uh, nothing is better than Legally Blonde. Uh, okay. Combine this haunting case with Elle Woods. Le- uh, Elle Woods have to, uh, try to prove that the ghosts are real. Legally Blonde 3, Legally Haunted. I love it. I love it. I'm all about- Lin-Manuel Miranda? There actually already been a Legally Blonde 3, and it was, uh, different. Okay. I don't think that Reese Witherspoon was in it, if memory serves. Oh, that's right. That Okay. It has the two British twins in it. Okay. Um, I learned something last week, because this is completely unrelated. I could not tell Reese Witherspoon, Renee Zellweger, and, oh God, what's her name? Gwyneth Paltrow apart. I cannot, for the life of me. Reese Witherspoon looks nothing like those other two. It's just like blonde women's from the late, blonde women from the late 90s, like those three actresses, I cannot differentiate between the three of them. Like, I can kind of see the other two, but Reese Witherspoon looks nothing like them. Are you ready for some questions? I'm ready for some questions. I only have three this time. Okay. 
Will the term caveat emptor be on the house or be on the on the test? Actually, um, it's going to be on this house because I am going to spray paint it on the side. <laughs> and yes, it'll be on the test because it's Latin and Latin means it's legal. Will the fact that there is a legally haunted house in New York be on the test? And it does remain legally haunted despite the later owners. Yes. And will the fact that four states require you to disclose if a house is haunted before selling be on the test? Absolutely. So yeah, this case is taught in law school. Sometimes it's just put on there kind of like, a, this is a weird, fun case, but sometimes it is, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of caveat emptor and, um, oh crud, I already closed my thing. That word that basically says uh, you can't invoke a, a, a right that you've already contradicted that right, which goes back into our logical fallacies episode, though, which, because that, that law basically says that you can't change. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is the... Nyack Haunted House, the first ever legally haunted house in the United States, and to my knowledge, the only legally haunted house haunted house in the United States. This is not the only case where ghosts have been brought into legal trials, though. What? I considered doing one of those, but I've heard uh, the American, the number, the first American one. I don't think there have been a subsequent, but definitely the first. I've heard it done on enough podcasts that I was like, I might save that for another time, but I'm going to talk about one I hadn't heard about today. See, because I've heard about animals being on trial and inanimate, inanimate objects being put on trial for stuff. The ghost itself was not on trial in this case. The ghost was a witness. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. There, yeah, that's I, so much better. <laughs> I believe there is a case from the UK where a ghost was put on trial. Um, and there are, you know, obviously people who are convicted of things posthumously, but, you know, there's nothing you can do. You can't put their ghost in jail. That'd be a waste of jailhouse space. Or it'd be a great use of it. Because I mean, there's just already put ha- their dead body in there. There's to already like abandoned haunted prisons. Just like say it's like this ghost is going to be spend the next 90 years in this abandoned penitentiary in Missouri. See, that's one thing that's like a real bummer about this quarantine is every year I'm like, this is the year we're finally going to go to the Kansas, the, the Missouri, Missouri State Penitentiary and we're going to go on their ghost tour. And I've also been like wavering. It's like, should we do the overnight hunt where you stay there all night? Like, and I'm I, nodding my head I am not going anywhere during this. Like, all the reports about the Midwest being the new New York City. I'm not. I'm not risking it. Uh-huh. Like Austin coughed earlier, and I was like, do we need to make him sleep outside? And it doesn't help that this is also like peak seasonal allergy season. For oh me. yeah, I've been living on my allergy meds every single day, but. Yeah, so we had some interesting stuff today, like stuff that's, yeah. there's, nobody got mad. Nobody got mad. Nobody, like, we interrupted each other. There was, and there was no genocides. That we know of. We, don't, we, know we of. don't know how Actually, Sir George and Lady Margaret ended up there. Yeah, oh, and we also, there's also the whole, like, organ harvesting stuff that has been literally confirmed as happening in China, so. Yes, but the chance in the States, the chances of you getting kidnapped and waking up in a bathtub full of ice, extremely unlikely. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's happened. It's probably happened in the six, but it's probably like less frequent than like a shark attack in Kansas. Did you see that um, satire news story that people thought was real about somebody dropping off a bag of organs and the hospital being like, well, we appreciate the donation. This is not the appropriate way to do it. And people thought it was real. (laughs) Okay. There's an entire like. There's an entire subreddit called Ate the Onion in which people will like post an article, an Onion article on like Facebook or something. And then a usually boomer family member will respond to it just furious and aghast that they can't believe this is happening. Trump did that a couple of days ago. It wasn't the Onion, but I think it was like maybe Babylon Bee, another satire site. And he was like, this is horrible and blah, blah, blah. And like, this is, I think, the day after Savannah Guthrie told him he can't just retweet whatever he wants. He's not, he, he's not your crazy uncle as much as his niece. Likes Mary, Mary Trump was like, actually, <laughs> yeah, guys, please vote. Have a plan to vote. If you are from a population where you think that, you know, you, you personally might be attacked while voting, there are volunteer groups in most states where they are willing to just have somebody hang out with you if you have to go vote in person. Um, if you've got a place where you can do a drop-off, do that drop-off. Yep. Have a plan. And again, if you're in a place where, you're, where you have to vote the day of and you're expecting a long line, um, like, you know, we're going to have a podcast coming out on that day because it's we? Tuesday. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're going to record it ahead of time. Uh, so just listen to us talk about something 
Maybe we should bring up something happy that day. Yeah, we'll do something. We'll, we'll both do something but happy. But we fun. have our Halloween episode between now and then. We do. We did a Halloween episode last year. We're doing a Halloween episode again this year, yes. but I'm not going to tell you what it's about. I'm not going to tell you what it's about either. Like, I thought I would do something a little spooky today, but that's not, that's not yeah, my Halloween it's like, I mean, episode. I did something a little spooky last week. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. we're just doing... No, yours was like sickening last week. A little spooky. Yeah. Oh, God. It was... Uh, Ian Brady and Myra something, whose last name I can't remember right now, the Moore's murders. That's what I was thinking of the whole time. And just, oh, oh. Um, well, where can people find us? Well, they can find us on Twitter at on the test pod, on Instagram at on the test pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash on the test pod, and on our website on the yeah, and we always love to hear from you guys. We are most active on Twitter, and by we, I mean I. If you watch The Masked Singer, tune in to us every week because I sit there tweeting about it the whole time. And, and, Kristen Bell liked one of my tweets. And Kim, uh, what's his name? Ken Young. Uh, Ken, Ken Young. Dr. Dr. Ken. Ken retweeted one. And, and we did not get any new listeners from it, but I am still like flying high off of this. Also, Kristen Bell is human perfection, and Dr. Ken is human perfection in a different way. Yeah. Do- Dr. Ken is just hilarious. Yes. We also don't understand that Can You See My Voice show. No. Can someone please explain to us? I have a theory that- There's ev- too many unknowns. There's it makes too many unknowns. It's chaos. Oh, I hit the mic again. It's chaos. It's not game theory. And there, like, there doesn't seem to be a set number of good singers versus bad singers, which makes me wonder: Are they all good singers? And the reason they tend to like touch their ear beforehand—I know that that's a like a mic check thing in a way—but I wonder if it's a voice in there saying good or bad. Ooh, I like the conspiracy well, theory. The thing though, it's like if it's a game show, like there's all sorts of laws to protect people from stuff like that. If they are doing that, it would be like a huge scandal. Unless they know about it ahead of time and signed off on it. Ooh, interesting. Like, I, I I, am so confused. If someone could, like, let us know how this game works. Like, I, it's one where I'm thinking about going back and trying to find the original version from Asia I think and watching that to see if it makes any more sense. I mean, I can probably find someone, if it's from the Philippines, who speaks Tagalog and can help me out. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to spend the rest of my day now really worried and, like, preoccupied with I can see your voice. I'm just going to, like, I'm going to... It'll just be the middle of the night. I'll just hear like some some angry grumbling in the other room, and I'll walk in, and she'll be in a dark room, just rewinding and watching the same scene from I Can See Your Voice over and over again, with writing furious notes in the dark, <laughs> hair just crazy, like it always is, because like it's the, not quite long enough for a ponytail, but I yeah. hate having it on my face. She, we've got quarantine hair going. Well, she does. I just don't have hair. Yeah, I shave his head for him. Well, I know you're very interested in that. But yeah, if you watch Mass Singer, follow us uh, during Mass Singer because I will talk about it. And uh, on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed.